In faith, I do not love thee with mine eyes, for they in thee a thousand errors see, but tis my heart that loves what they despise, who, in despite of view, art pleased to dote. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Tell me more. Space, the final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast, Give Me That Star Trek. It's ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 30 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and today we're talking about something near and dear to my heart, the works of William Shakespeare and their connection to Star Trek. I'm not alone in this endeavor. Welcome fellow armchair Shakespeare scholar and Trekkie, Derek William Crabb of the Fan Holes Podcast. Hi, Derek. Hey, what's up, Siskoid? This is awesome. I, I, I'm looking forward to being a amateur Shakespeare scholar and Star Trek scholar, as it were. Yeah, I, I call myself also armchair because although I have a degree in uh, English lit, I feel like uh, we didn't do all that much Shakespeare in the courses that I did take and the more or less exploded for me after. So more of a self-taught Shakespeare scholar, so so to speak. (laughs) I'm like, I I have a bachelor's in theater arts, so I guess it's pretty well put towards the Shakespeare, but no one's ever paid me to perform Shakespeare, so Hmm. I can't say I'm a professional. Same here. I did some uh, Moliere, and uh, you know, when you're a French-speaking person, that's your opportunities are over on that side. But uh, you've been on the show before, uh, in the, the bracket fight, yeah. the famous or infamous bracket fight, <laughs> depending on who you ask. But you did not get at that time to lay out your Trek fandom for uh, the folks listening. So uh, before we get into any anything deeper, uh, let's talk about that. And uh, you have to answer the questions. I'm, I'm ready to be grilled. I've been, I've been doing a lot of uh, promotional interviews lately, so I figured this should only enhance and, and add to my, my skills as far as answering questions on the fly. So hey, let's have at it. All right, let's play Actors Studio. How did you become a Trekkie? That's the question. What's your Star Trek secret origin? I watched the original series. I, I watched the original series with my dad. I was trying to think about it because sometimes you're hard pressed to think like what what was the first episode I I might have seen. I'm pretty sure I think the one that stands out to me the most, the one I have the most distinct memory of, was the episode with the Horda, Devil in the Dark. Like mm-hmm. I I really remember that vividly. So I I, I can't say for sure. And uh, you know, obviously at my age, it was definitely in a rerun. But I'm pretty sure that was the first episode I ever saw. So uh, you know the the aspect of Spock mind melding and you know communicating with a creature that couldn't necessarily speak uh, a language as they comprehended it like all that kind of stuff really permeated and so I think I understood you know the the Vulcan culture or aspects of that early on in my fandom of the franchise and everything and I I mean I remember I frequently would watch the original series with my dad I mean I never I, I always thought it was weird like my my funny story about Star Trek 2 is that 
didn't realize there was a Star Trek one. Like, when I was a really little kid, I just sort of assumed that the original series was Star Trek one. Because the first movie I ever saw in the theater was Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. So I just assumed Star Trek II meant, like, two from, you know, Space Seed or, you know, any of the other original series episodes. So I didn't really realize there was a motion picture. But then, oddly enough, I had the Mego three and three quarters Mr. Spock figure. So I had him in his little, you know, pajama suit from the motion picture. But I, I think my little kid brain at the time didn't comprehend that there was an original movie until I got to watch it on like cable or VHS or something like that. And, you know, I guess I came out of the theater and Star Trek two all sad and everything, you know, cause Mr. Spock had died. And then my dad was like, don't worry, you know, he'll, they'll bring him back. And then, you know, of course, Star Trek three made my dad a truth sayer. And, you know, I mean, after that, <laughs> I was just, I was kind of hooked. Like I pretty much watched all the movies in the theater. The, the other thing about me that maybe people may or may not want to know or understand when it comes to Trek fandom is I'm the guy who watches the new series, like The Next Generation, and I call it a new series, so that shows my age, right? But I watch new stuff like The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager. I'll I'll watch it for, like, the early on in the first season and go, this is not the original Star Trek, and then maybe move away from it for a while. And usually, like, right around the fourth season, everything starts to get really good and ramp up. And then I would come back and, like, religiously watch the series and then go back and watch all the other episodes and reruns. And I noticed with those three series... Like, that is my track record. And then, of course, it it can't work that way with Enterprise because it started getting really good in the fourth season and then they canned it. So so that doesn't quite apply to Enterprise, but, like, that's basically how I would watch all those series and everything. And, and, you know, yeah, uh, ever since then, I mean, I'm pretty much current and up-to-date on Star Trek, except for... I guess I haven't seen the latest episode of Discovery, but I have watched the the season two premiere. So I'm I'm pretty much deeply entrenched in Star Trek, you know, the comics and the the toys and different things like that. I've always you know enjoyed the franchise on the whole. I guess Discovery gets good in three years, <laughs> uh, possibly. It, it may it may it may even be getting good now. I don't I don't know. Like I've I've, I've enjoyed aspects of it. So yeah, good. Uh, well, what's your favorite iteration of the show? Is it still the original series? Yeah, I I, I feel like I, I I don't know. I might be swiping Chris Frank. Franklin's answer, but I, I think I, I would say original series, but maybe leaning towards, you know, the, the red Rathacon 2 movie uniform era the most, like, because I, I, I feel like those comic books and those films are the ones that when someone said Star Trek to me when I was deeply entrenched as a child and a teenager in the fandom, like if somebody said Star Trek to me, that would be the image I'd have of all the original bridge crew, but in all the the red and black slacks uniforms and everything. So I, I think I'd I might specifically point to that era of the original series as as my favorite iteration. Yeah, I think we grew up some more or less in the same time period. So to me, motion picture, the film I knew from the Mad Magazine parody. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. <laughs> and then I read the novelization, and I didn't see it for, like, I don't know, <laughs> years and years before I actually saw it. So, yeah, to me, the original cast, and then it jumped right to, to Wrath of God. Yeah, I think I think it's funny that you said the Mad Magazine was probably your first exposure to it. I kind of feel like those, those read-along books, you know, with, like, the records and tapes where, you know, you... I don't know, I think instead of R2-D2's beep, it was probably, like, the bridge sound where it was like you know and then you 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 turn the page or whatever you know something like that like so i I think that's the first time i was probably other than the Mego figure i was ever exposed to to that era of uh the motion picture yeah a lot of that early culture if, if something came out in the 70s i probably digested it some other way i think i experienced the first star wars film as a book 
first. You know, that's kind mm, of stuff. Okay. okay. Uh, what's your favorite character from, uh, but well, from any iteration, but I'm guessing maybe uh, you'll lean towards a, an original cast member? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, we've sort of put the, the horse before the cart type thing or cart before the horse. But I mean, I, I obviously like, you know, I, I was like, I have an autograph from, from William Shatner. Like, I love Captain Kirk. But I was just going to say, you know, when I'm not sticking up for, you know, Ensign Walking Bear, Ensign Bear Claw and Chakotay, it's going to be Captain Kirk. So. Uh, and what's your favorite alien species from the show? I'm going to pull a shag on this one. I'm going to say the Orion Slave Girls because they're hot. And, and leave it at that. You know, otherwise, honorable mentions to the, the Klingons. Okay, cool. The Orion slave girls are slavers rather than slaves, as it turns out. Yeah, so yeah, that's an yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah, they made them more interesting when they did that. All right, well, we should do the flip side. How much of, of a Shakespeare fan are you? How does that start? I think I'm a pretty big Shakespeare fan. I mean, I, I think that happened or exploded in college, really. But since I was in probably, I mean, when I was really young, I was always working on plays in like community type programs, like during the summers and stuff like that. And that's kind of how my mom facilitated that passion. So a lot of times for like, you know, summer camps or whatever it was, you know, like a lot of kids would go to summer camp or something like that. Like I would go to like a theater class and go perform a play, you know, it'd be something like you're a good man, Charlie Brown or something like that. And you'd do that, you know, for the whole summer and then put it on at the end of the, you know, in August or something like that. And then as that kind of I guess education became incorporated into, say, like junior high and high school. Like that's when I started being introduced to Shakespeare. So I'm, I'm trying to think, but the the first like performance of Shakespeare I can think of doing was probably a scene from Much Ado About Nothing, and I was all nervous about it because I I liked the other girl in the scene, and <laughs> I I wanted to make sure I had all my lines right, and then I think I had to like you know, get on one knee and I, I had to, you know, kiss her on the hand. So I was nervous about that. And then I think my dad helped me too, because there were no, it wasn't like I had a fencing foil or anything like that, but like he helped me make like this homemade kind of, it, it was funny. It was like, it was like some kind of like car antenna and we stuck it on to like a screwdriver. And then there was like the little, you know, foil guard that he made out of like, I mean, he just put stuff together from like hardware and we sort of taped it all together. And so by the end of it, it was kind of like this innocuous, like you, you know, you wouldn't get thrown out of school for having it, but it still visually appeared to be a fencing foil that I could just put on my side or whatever. And so like, that's the first scene I can think of performing as far as like continuing on. Like by the time I was in college, um, I'd probably performed and done scene study from things like Taming of the Shrew, uh, Henry V, The Winter's Tale. I was in like a full performance of Hamlet and I was in multiple productions of, of Romeo and Juliet. And then sort of like the offshoots, like I, I, you know, it's not really Shakespeare, but as far as my education goes, like I, I did, I did scene work on Rosencrantz and Kildenstern are dead and I was in a full production of Marlowe's Edward II. So like I've done a lot of stuff like that. And then I guess in terms of King Lear, like, that was one of the monologues I had. I was Edmund, and I did the bastard speech, and that's basically the monologue. You you were supposed to have, because we were auditioning to go to the Royal National Theatre Studio in London, and so you were supposed to have two monologues. And so at the time, I was doing, I was actually performing in Assassin, so I was Sam Beck. So I used that monologue as my contemporary, and then for, you know, the the Shakespeare monologue, which was the requirement of the audition, then I, I would 
do the King Lear monologue. So I did those two and I was uh, accepted. So like I've studied with, I, I don't know if you're familiar or not, but there's a actor, a gentleman named Michael Maloney. Sure. And like, yeah. And so, so that was somebody I studied with at the Royal National Theater Studio. So like based on that, like I, I know there's some people, I mean, I can like name drop or whatever, but I mean, I, I just remember there were, there, there it was like it, you were excited because you're like, Oh yeah, Jillian Anderson went to this program. You know, like there were, there were people that you knew, you know, Oh, Derek. Jacoby went to this program, you know, so you were like all excited because you were sort of, I don't know, were led to believe, oh, I, I, I'm potentially a contemporary with this really awesome, you know, great performer or whatever. So like those kind of things were my experience with Shakespeare. I mean, I enjoyed taking classes and reading up on the plays themselves, even if I wasn't performing them. And then I, I did write a screenplay that was called Much Ado About Hamlet. And it was kind of, you know, it was sort of like a comedy Kevin Smith version of of all the hijinks that I thought surrounded the performance of Hamlet that we did at college. So like, cause I was always kind of, I mean, we may talk about this a little more, but my, my ongoing joke about the performance of Hamlet was when they made me the ghost, it, it, I guess it was decided I was going to, I mean, I called myself a Christmas tree light setup. Like, like they actually had like electrical Christmas tree lights and they were all blue. So I would like glow on stage because the stage would be almost entirely black. But then the whole time, since it was blacked out, like I was like, I'm going to die. I'm going to fall down these stairs and I'm going to die. So like what I usually did was, and you know, this is me not judging blind box people, but like how I practiced for that was there were these like five steps that I had to walk up and down in the dark. So like I would constantly practice that because I couldn't, it's like there were lights on, but it was like the Christmas lights were like in my face. So I was essentially blind. So I was like just practicing like, oh, I'm trying to deliver, you know, ghost of Hamlet speeches, you know, to, to my son, ostensibly, but also not like fall down the stairs. But a couple times, I'm sure I just was like trying to be all regal and ghostly. And I like slid down the stairs and just narrowly like sort of, made it in one piece or whatever. But yeah, th those were sort of my, I guess my experiences and uh, I guess my, my Shakespeare cred as it were. So trying not to become a ghost yourself. <laughs> yes, yes, precisely, precisely. When you say you studied with uh, Michael Maloney, do you mean he was a contemporary of yours or do you mean uh, studied under him? Yeah, yeah, studied under him. Like yeah. like he, he was usually, like they, they would have guest teachers and things like that that would come in and train. And so like that that was, you know, frequently what would happen. Like there'd be different people that would come in. Like I, I remember some of my classmates who went to the program like the year after I did, you know, studied under. Derek Jacoby and stuff like that. so it was like yeah. it, it, depending on you know what year it was there was there, there was always like a different kind of guest teacher you know right. so to speak because Michael Maloney did star in something not unlike your Much Ado About Hamlet uh, in the bleak midwinter yeah yeah the midwinter the, the kid Brenna thing yeah 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 the, yeah. yeah it's called different things and in the UK it's called in the bleak midwinter um, oh okay and over okay. here they sell it as uh, midwinter stale but it's yeah it's essentially a troupe of uh, players. Uh, oddballs who um, tried to put on Hamlet for Christmas. It's hilarious. I don't know if you've seen it, but uh... yeah, 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 yeah. I've. I think after I uh, went to the Royal National Theater Studio, like that was one of the things. Like, because we, we I, I remembered him from Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. You know, sure. like that's where I knew him from. Hilarities and that. Yeah. 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 And so. But after that, I remember th this was back in the day, kids. I had to track down a a scruffy old VHS tape 
of of a midwinter's tale and everything and then that's you know, all yeah, that was so. available for a while well yeah i mean i mean at that point i think it was I'm trying to remember when i went there and it was i think it was in 98 or 97 like some, something like that that was the summer of either 97 or 98 and and you know at that time like yeah that's maybe a year later they were starting to push out DVDs or something yeah. like that. But at the time, there was nothing like that. Uh, he's also uh, either Rosencrantz or Guildenstern in uh, the Mel Gibson Hamlet. So oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He has a good history with, with that play and <laughs> on film. Speaking of which, I guess the next question really is, what is your favorite play? I don't... Hmm. I, I, I don't know that I was expecting a favorite play question. I guess... I, I really, I really do like much about, uh, much ado about nothing, but then, then there's that part of me that like, likes all the, like a, a sort of a true revenge play, which is like, to me is like Titus, you know, cause it's like, oh yeah, this is like, you know, really not in a sense of Hamlet where he's sort of, you know, wrestling with things like Titus is, you know, full on committal to, to the revenge. Yeah. It's a nasty, that's a nasty one. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say, I'd say maybe I go into the extremes because much ado about nothing, I think is that feel good, you know, romantic comedy type thing, you know, the misunderstandings, you know, everybody has a happy ending, you know, like that, like that kind of stuff I enjoy, you know, so it's not, you know, doom and gloom and, you know, Romeo and Juliet are, you know, dying tragically and all that kind of stuff. You know, Much Ado About Nothing, I think, is is the one that I probably point to as far as a feel-good thing. But if if I wanted to get into, you know, my Klingon side, you know, and get into the whole, you know, honor and revenge and all that kind of stuff, I might I might point to Titus. <laughs> because for me, I, I love Much Ado About Nothing, even though it is considered one of the lesser plays in a sense. You know, it's not one of the the great, great classics that they teach in school, usually. Not in English lit, anyways. But I do love it, and it's probably my favorite of the comedies. But then I can't say... I, I can't say my answer would be anything other than Hamlet, just because of my history with it. Which is... I mean, I've got a blog that is completely devoted to every film... Ver well, not every film version. There are, like, hundreds. But, uh, you know, I, I dissected every scene... In the text, in uh, film versions, scene by scene, character by character, you know, in musicals and comic books. And so, so that, that blog has been resting for a few years now because I, I sort of completed the project. People know me as the guy who has several copies of Hamlet just laying around. I, I sort of know the text, you know. It, it's funny, you, you reminded me. Another thing I can... I can give myself Shakespeare cred for if somebody's listening is I, I still have a, a copy or, you know, a reproduction of the first folio stuff. Like we would always use that as our, mm. as our text when performing. Cause I, the way we were trained, like we would always do kind of like text work on our roles. And a lot of times that would involve doing your own text work, like figuring out like what words you were going to emphasize and what things you were going to sort of use as your active words and things like that. And you would really intensely study your text. And when it's something that's, I guess, modern or, you know, in the current vernacular, you, you sort of do that work on your own. But I, I remember the, the trick was with the, the first folio stuff was if you learned how to read it, because it was always, I guess, to, to a layman, they would look at it and kind of go, well, why are all these, these words capitalized when they're not, you know, they, they shouldn't be capitalized basically like why are all these like why do these words have italics like why is that and y you slowly learned like oh this is the folio is like the actor's text work that they've already done like that they're carrying around on stage so it's like to them it's like that's helping them it's like their cliff notes or their trick notes to 
how they would perform it. So then that, that would sort of assist you in, in figuring out like what, you know, what, what words you're going to use as your active words and, and what words you're going to emphasize and everything. So there, there was that aspect to it as well. And do you have a favorite character in the, the canon? I would always get cast as like the, the heavy sometimes in college. So I think that's why I did the bastard monologue, like why I, I liked Edmund in King Lear. So I think that's why I was drawn to that. So I think I'll just, I'll probably go with that as, as a favorite character. Interesting, because I, I mirror that in the sense, well, I'm not an actor, but I am an improv player. So to me, uh, my favorite character, absent any context, is uh, Iago. Oh, okay. okay because he, cool. he is, he's an improv player. He, yeah, you know, he's yeah. improvising the whole way through. So, uh, And also a villain. He's sort of the mirror to Edmund. I did always love uh, Orson Welles' Othello. You know, like I always I always dug that. So I, I enjoyed watching. I, I don't know. I, I guess I was introduced to that. It was actually a, a like a dramatic literature class, but the, I guess one day they had us sit down and watch that. And I, mm. I've always loved that interpretation of it. I haven't seen it yet, but it's, it's running on TCM this week. So. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> so I am cool. taping it. Uh, by the time people listen to this, I will have seen it. Um, awesome. Yeah, favorite alien species is the last question. I, I was like, I was like, what? I'm like, I'm totally gonna get into trouble for this. Like, I, I don't, I don't know how to answer. Like, I, I was thinking, like, do I? I'm like, continue my um, ensign bear claw walking bear thing. Do I just say like, you know, Caliban like is my favorite? I don't know. I, I'm like trying to think of what else you could possibly say. But yeah. <laughs> the fairies yeah. and then whatever Caliban is. And yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Norwegians invading. I don't know. So uh, that is not a question we can as easily answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, Shakespeare is everywhere you look in our culture, but in Star Trek, especially in the original series. That's why we want to talk about it. The original series, the movies, Next Generation, that's where it's mostly present. How many episode titles were pulled from Shakespeare? How many plot points? How many outright quotes? Uh, there must be a link, Derek. Are there favorite references of yours uh, across uh, Trek? I guess it depends on who's uttering them. Cause it's like that, that's, that's those kind of things where I was like kind of reviewing everything. And I don't think I've ever tried to watch Star Trek through a Shakespearean lens, even though I remember like a lot of my, uh, dramatic history professors. I, I had one professor and she loved Star Trek. I mean, she adored it. Like I think, I think she was in love with William Shatner. Like she, she loved Star Trek. And when I would tell her, Oh yeah, I'm going home to watch a Star Trek marathon. She's like, Oh, that's so great. Like that, that's, that's such a great show. And, and she went on and on about it. And, and she really did love it, I think, in part because, you know, she was a dramatic history teacher and had a lot of love for, you know, Shakespeare as part of that dramatic history. But also, I mean, I think when it's somebody like Shatner or somebody like Patrick Stewart, like you, you see them in like, say, the, the captain's documentary and you see them have that common bond over being performers, you know, and that's that, I don't know, to me, that seemed like that was you know, even though maybe all four or five of those captains have somewhat disparate backgrounds or education or or even, you know, acting experience and all that kind of stuff, it seemed like what Patrick Stewart and William Shatner connected on was was that commonality of the, the theatrical, the stage performances and all that kind of stuff. And so, like, I was always kind of, like, fascinated with anything, like, if, if Shatner was delivering it, if Stewart was delivering, like, the sonnets or, you know, the Hamlet, for instance, like, all those kind of things, like, you know, they, they would emphasize, I mean, depending on the context of the scene, right? But most times, like, they, they treated it with uh, a certain weight. And I, I'd also point out probably Andy Robinson, 
You know, like, like there's not a lot of, I mean, I don't know. There, there's a lot of titles from Deep Space Nine that come from Shakespeare, but there's not necessarily a lot of quoting of Shakespeare. But I think when, when it's, you know, a character actor that has, you know, just a wonderful performance and, and, a, and a great demeanor and everything, you know, it, it's, it's great to listen to him, you know, kind of say, you know, I'm afraid the fault, dear Tane, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. You know, he's like, oh, that's something I learned from Dr. Bashir, you know, and you're like, oh, okay. So he's quoting Shakespeare. He knows it because of his lunches with Dr. Bashir. But obviously you've got a, you know, a wonderful performer under the Cardassian makeup to sell that and everything. Or or even like, you know, I mean, probably I guess the easy go to would be like somebody like, you know, General Chang, right? You know, like you got Christopher yeah. Plummer doing all these famous quotes. Because, of course, the basis for dramatic tradition is Shakespeare, <laughs> you know, so it will filter it through all everything that comes after him in the Western tradition, including TV shows. So the writers of the, sh the original show obviously knew their Shakespeare. And maybe we as uh, Shakespeare uh, readers and performers, we look at storylines and say, well, that's obviously pulled from Shakespeare. You know, the Romeo and Juliet, that classic story is redone hundreds of times. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is it that? Is it that Shakespeare just happens to be the most remembered writer of the beginning of, you know, English literature. And so he's sort of lucky. He, he stole his plots. I mean, I never yeah, yeah. thought of him as a plotter. What, what is it that, you know, there's, there's only, you know, seven stories that someone can tell really. Right. And it's like, it's like obviously with, with Shakespeare's plays, he's told all those stories probably times, you know, three or four, right? Like with his, his, you know, bibliography and everything. I don't know. It's like, it's funny because sometimes you're like, oh, well, some of these things are really obvious, right? Like you've got Tucker and to Paul and they, they make references to Romeo and Juliet and it's, it's easy, you know, visually to see them as star-crossed lovers, you know, and, 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 you know, the logic, the non-emotion versus kind of a, a very, you know, somebody who's essentially maybe the, you know, arguably the, the heart of, of the starship, you know, maybe literally and figuratively because he's the engineer, you know, like, I mean, besides the Horta episode, like, I think one of the episodes that always stood out to me as a kid and not necessarily because it was, uh, you know, related to Shakespeare, but I, I always remember the Kelvin episode. Like, I always remember, you know, them turning them into little salt cubes or whatever it was and, and crushing the, the one poor girl or whatever, right? And then, and then it's like they, then then they, you know, beam the other guy back to his normal form, you know, and, and, you know, Kirk's sitting there with all the, you know, salt in his hand and everything like that. And that always stood out to me, you know, and then, you know, when, when Kirk is the one kind of trying to seduce the, the Kelvin female, he, he uses the Shakespeare, you know, he uses the, you know, that which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet type thing. So it's like, there, there's an aspect to it. It seems like it's stronger. I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm talking out of turn, but to me, it seems like a lot of the references are much stronger in the original series and then the next generation. And in the original series, they're not putting a sign on it. Like it's, it, it just happens to be part of earth culture and it ends up getting communicated that way. I think, I think sometimes in the next generation, it, I don't know, invariably it seems to revolve around like holodeck stuff or, or maybe data trying to, 
learn about or reach his humanity like through performing Shakespeare like that that seems to be the context of those other than you know maybe some comical things with like Luoxana Troy or something like that you know like where it's it based on data trying to you know seek out that that he can be a better performer and then somehow find his humanity through performing Shakespeare and then I guess some of the other series like I said to, to me it's not it's not disparaging Romeo and Juliet but like you said probably like every school kid has read Romeo and Juliet at some point. It's probably a text that's taught. And so, and, and it's also a very easy reference to make, especially in the context of, of like Tucker into Paul. So that's something that's an easier reference to make, maybe more, a more base reference, you know, like something that's not quite as deep cut. Like if somebody was, you know, running around quoting the Merchant of Venice, right? Like where that, that's something that ends up getting quoted in Deep Space Nine. And if you've got like the Section 31 guy running around, you know, explaining to the, the Romulan, you know, um, ally when they're fighting in the Dominion War about what that, you know, particular quote means and everything. Data also goes, uh, if you prick me, do I not leak? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they, they have variations <laughs> on it. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because I, I was sort of playing devil's advocate, saying, "Well, if, if you know, if Shakespeare is so is so much of the you know the bedrock of uh, Western drama, then of course Star Trek touches on it accidentally." I, I'm saying I'm playing devil's advocate because I don't believe that's the truth. I think there is a much closer bond that is formed, and and you mentioned Data and Data exploring his humanity through sometimes he plays scenes, you know, the Henry V yeah, scene yeah. and. Uh, the Tempest, you know, all of that stuff. Really, you know, that's what Shakespeare and Star Trek are both about, which is exploring the human condition. One of my favorite critics on Shakespeare, and I'm sorry, I'm not, not going to name Northrop Fry here, even though he comes from my hometown. Really, I'm going to quote Harold Bloom. There, there's a book called Shakespeare, The Invention of the Human. And in that, he argues quite well that sh what the thing that makes Shakespeare Shakespeare, the thing that he innovated when he started his drama, compared to all the drama around him, the Marlowe and all of that stuff, is that for the first time, characters could hear themselves and change themselves. So that the exploration of the human beings, like for the first time, characters were not types or caricatures or cartoons uh, meant to be that, that specific type. They were real living people. And real living people speaking through uh, soliloquies could hear themselves speak and convince themselves of things, change their minds right there on stage. We could see for the first time how a person thinks, as opposed to having the, the sort of dramatic arc that they must have because it's drama. Hamlet being the, the great example of someone who has a function in the drama and keeps delaying that function, refusing to, you know, to, to be yeah. the character that he's been written to be. So he escapes the author. And he's trying to escape the play, and that's Hamlet, but a lot of the characters have similar inner lives that we're privy to that the characters before uh, Shakespeare did not have. And so even the early plays of Shakespeare don't have that yet, and then he, he sort of figures it out uh, along the way. So in Star Trek, we get the same idea where we now we, ha we are in that tradition. We're all thinking and looking at drama as Shakespeare did. We're, we're just used to it. It just didn't exist before. And now it does, so it's just part of... It, it seems natural, and we take it for granted. But in Star Trek, we're, the, the, you know, the, we're exploring space, but also inner space. We're finding out about ourselves as we find out about the universe. And that's the message of Trek, or one of its messages. 
And uh, Data is a perfect vessel for that, or just as Spock was. And you always have that character who is exploring, who's outside humanity and exploring it. And we're exploring it through their eyes. Uh, so it's interesting that they use Shakespeare as uh, an engine in many of those scenes. And Picard himself says in The Defector, there's no better way to embrace the human condition than reading or playing Shakespeare. He tells this to Data. And that's embedded in there, that one scene in a show that's not really about them. It's a Geordie show. There's that clue to why Star Trek and Shakespeare are one in the same or in the same sort of mode. Uh, you know, the same heightened kind of drama where we're exploring the same things through the allegory of science fiction rather than how Shakespeare was doing it. But that's one of the links between the two the two worlds. Yeah, and I think I think like Q plays your you know, when we when you were playing your devil's advocate role, you know, Q is the one who who plays that role that says what's the big deal about Shakespeare? You know, and Picard kinda turns that on its head because he knows the material better than Q does. Q's just, he thinks he knows it, but he doesn't. So it's, it's, it's one of those turnabout moments where Picard turns that scene on its head and quotes Shakespeare right back to him and kind of sticks it in his face. And then, you know, to what you were saying before about how there's certain amounts of, you know, I guess a limited amount of stories one can tell and that Shakespeare borrowed stories and stuff like that. I mean, the the, the one thing that I mentioned to you before we started recording was all I could think of when you talked about, like, Shakespeare and Star Trek, I, I feel like the perfect hybrid of that is the the movie Forbidden Planet. You know, it's like Forbidden Planet clearly had a great influence on Star Trek, but also if you look at it, it seems like The Tempest is clearly the you know, I, I mean, if you wanted to point to a framework for The Forbidden Planet or any number of Star Trek episodes, it seems like when I was doing this research, like every other episode is like, oh, loosely, loosely structured around The Tempest, based on The Tempest. This is kind of like The Tempest, and it seems like that framework works extremely exceptionally well for mm -hmm. something that is set in science fiction it doesn't you know it, that kind of allegory you know like it, it works it's like obviously in the tempest it's kind of an allegory to the new world it's it's an allegory to you know people exploring you know new continents but that can equally apply to new galaxies and civilizations just like the sort of mandate of star trek is that, that's why it's funny because you talk about general chang and then doing the whole you know original original Hamlet, you know, and Klingon, and 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 I was watching these YouTube videos where I guess the guy read the 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 actual book of the you know the original Hamlet in Klingon, and you know we're making the joke about what's your favorite alien race, but they they made the parallels of like okay, well Denmark is Kronos in that version you know it's like it's like I, right. I think like the federation or something you know and it's like it's like they, they they have the little equivalents for what these nation states are you know basically but in in that sense it's like oh the, these are the romulans these are this is cardassia you know like that that kind of thing so you know th those kind of things are, are pretty interesting as well but i've read it you know they're just like one they're facing pages so you're looking one page in klingon uh, and it's been translated by the Klingon Institute, so, it, you know, it's all good. Uh, and then on the other side is the English text, of course. And then at the end, you've got notes about how certain concepts don't really exist. So the English translation is a corruption of the mm. original Klingon. Uh, <laughs> but that, that as much as anything, like the whole point of the Klingons appropriating Shakespeare and saying it's it's theirs. And somehow it's also filtered into their, even though we can believe it, it originated on Earth and somehow they stole the text and embraced it. 
So the idea that um, I don't know universe, you know, we're we're talking about universal literature that is that taps into the human or let's say humanoid, uh, not to be racist, the humanoid condition. And um, I, I don't know. I feel like the undiscovered country is about that universality extending to alien cultures and how we respond to them. It's in Star Trek that even though we're, we're seeing aliens who are perhaps correspond to other cultures here on Earth, but even if they don't, the fact that Shakespeare applies to them as well as us, that there is a universal constant or moral constant or psychological constant that is beyond just the Western canon, just beyond humanity, beyond, you know, even Phlox and there, there's an Enterprise episode where Phlox, the mirror Phlox says, like, Shakespeare is essentially the same in the mirror universe. So there, there is something about that that let's, let's put Shakespeare in the, or other literatures in the mouths of aliens. And so we can claim all peoples are equal. Yeah, or, or, or conceivably that the, the material is so great that, you know, you, you've got like uh, Orion, slave girl, bat girl, you know, stealing Shakespeare sonnets. You know, that it's something that transcends what a universal constant or something, the, the themes, the emotions and aspects of his work that transcends any kind of self-imposed barriers you're going to impose upon yourself. It's like that. I guess, as you said, you know, you don't want to be speciest, you know, like you just say humanoid condition, but that applies to all those all those races in or, or species in Star Trek. If we go back, there's another message to me that, about Shakespeare in in Trek, and it's um, I guess it originates with the conscience of the king. That's a first season original series episode, the one where Kirk goes to uh, see a play. He goes, I, you know. Uh, <laughs> there's a traveling troupe in space. There's a traveling troupe. The, the guy does not have to wear crazy Christmas tree lights, and he is still playing the ghost of Hamlet. So, yeah. Kirk falls in love with the uh, the woman playing uh, Ophelia, or variably. <laughs> you know, there's more than one play. But it's supposed to be... The, the title is a quote from Hamlet. Uh, it's supposed to become some sort of revenge play. There are shades of Hamlet in the plot line of the, the story itself, but Mad Ophelia in this will be is the murderer. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and her father is like the Claudius who killed some, you know, killed a, basically the whole planet. And um, I guess I guess everybody was comparing him to uh, to Thanos not so recently. Oh yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Kodos. Um, yeah. yeah. So, anyways, that. that in that episode, the important thing is, yes, it's everything is pulled from Shakespeare and they've got people performing Shakespeare. But I think that the, the crucial thing is that Kirk is revealed to be a fan of Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah. Jump to the next generation. Well, and obviously they make a big case of it in um, The Undiscovered Country in Star Trek VI, where Kirk is one of the things that riles Kirk up is that Chang is stealing his beloved Shakespeare sort of thing. Uh, yeah. I think we're supposed to get that. And then jump to the next generation, you've got a Shakespearean actor as the captain. He's got uh, complete works of Shakespeare in his ready room. I have that same book, that same exact book. I don't know if it survives to the 23rd century or what, but <laughs> um, it's the same, same edition, yeah. Presumably uh, they could replicate your book, right? Like, yeah, presumably. But, I mean, he puts it in a case. It's in a case. I, yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. It's an, it, it, it must be an original. Yeah, it's an antique. Uh, I got it for like 40 bucks, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he quotes Shakespeare a lot, and he uh, plays Shakespeare on the holodeck, and he, you know, he he schools data on Shakespeare and all of that, and uses it in scenes. He wins back Loaxana Troy from Damon Tog by quoting Shakespeare sonnets and everything. So here, here's my point: Star Trek, especially those two series, 
are in great part about the Renaissance man being the epitome of the human. You know, Shakespeare being the greatest literature, you know, one of our greatest cultural exports in the universe. And these men who are in charge of these these ships and they they might have very technical skills and you know what did he teach at the academy and it seems to me that shakespeare is like you got to learn this stuff and no starfleet officer is going to go out there and not know their shakespeare and other great literatures you've got to be a full well-rounded person in this federation utopia even recently you you, you haven't seen it but uh at, at the time of recording the second episode of the discovery just came out and in that it's no spoiler you've got captain pike quoting shakespeare and michael burnham saying yes i know my shakespeare so Again, Re- required reading at Starfleet. Required Academy. reading, and re- it, I think it's it's part of the Federation philosophy in a way. And I think that the Renaissance man, uh, that idea that you can't just be an engineer and have that sort of technical mindset and still run a starship competently. You've got to know your philosophy. You got to know your literature. You got to know your your psychology. And I think Shakespeare is an access to all of that. It's like the show is saying. Shakespeare is the thing that whatever happens, this is what you got to show the aliens. This is the stuff that. You- well, I guess, I guess in that sense, right? It's it's something that you'd stick in the Voyager satellite and hope V'ger reads and doesn't want to annihilate your planet, right? Like this is this is the, the the pinnacle of our culture, our humanity, and and it's it's a way to be expressive and also kind of like we've been saying, kind of rotates through all the. The themes, you know, love, uh, hate, revenge, um, you know, like like all, all these aspects of being a human being. And taking it back to Bloom, one of the things that Invention of the Human talks about is that not only does Shakespeare give an interior life to all his characters, the variety of characters is insane when you think about it. That one person would have written, would have been able to write the interior life of a soldier, a scholar, women, men people from other uh, climbs, villains and heroes, and the, the, the sheer variety of character that, that is in the canon and that still get these moments of interiority is dazzling. This is why this is one of the greatest literatures ever, if not the greatest. As, as part of the Star Trek universe, we are all included sort of thing. We are all included inside this drama, this canon, this rather limited canon of drama. We are all in there. And... Shakespeare helps us understand others. There's a multiplicity there that is equal to the Eddick philosophy or something. You know, what they ask of Starfleet officers is to be this full-rounded, thinking, reflecting person, open-minded person, which is kind of the lesson that Shakespeare teaches us through his character writing. And the writers of the show have been aware of this, uh, have tapped into it, Variably, of course. Like you said, after Next Gen, it doesn't seem so Shakespearean anymore. DS9 does have its moments. Voyager has fewer moments of Shakespearean-ness. Enterprise more or less picks it back up. Not really. I think Discovery is the most Shakespearean since since the the since next gen probably yeah do you think it makes a difference that like because i'm just thinking about it like that when other species come to the federation it's not often it's not like you see Worf necessarily quoting shakespeare per se or that you see 
you know, I don't know, uh, you know, an, uh, an Andorian or things like that. Like, I mean, it, I, I know you mentioned flocks, so that's maybe an exception to that rule. But it's like, I, I'm just trying to think of like, you know, if it is required reading, you know, if that is something that makes someone a more rounded Starfleet officer, is that something where the Federation of Planets, is that something that, that becomes universalized as far as, you know, somebody's training and, and where, you know, it, it's kind of like, it, it's funny because even when you study Shakespeare as as a you know as a quote unquote human being in the modern age, you know there there's often there were always those nice giant texts where they would have annotated Shakespeare texts, and you know when you're when you're reading it and say like an English lit capacity, you know you you'd read the text, and a lot of times Shakespeare would make references to you know I mean I'm thinking of like my Player King speech, you know it, it has to do with all these historical figures and 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 Greek you know um, you know mythology or different things like that. And it's something you might not necessarily have the reference to. It's like, it always made me think like, you know, 200 years from now, is somebody going to annotate my podcast and kind of say, oh, Captain America was <laughs> a Marvel Comics character. And what he's talking about is, you know, he was the symbol of liberty and truth and blah, 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 blah. You know, and it's like, you you often have those annotations. So it's like, is that something that Ambassador Strand would have to read up on and kind of get on page with Archer to, to have a conversation with him? Or is it is it just something that... We, we assume that the universality of, of Shakespeare does tend to permeate throughout the universe, you know, regardless of any, maybe using, say, like the Klingon Hamlet as an example of that. Yeah, maybe translations have cultural, you know, they, they're not so much translations as they are remakes. You know, like France produces a lot of movies, and then uh, the U.S. Will, will make their own version with American actors because... You know, uh, Americans are notoriously, uh, notoriously do not like to read <laughs> subtitles. I mean, the same challenges exist in the future as they do here. When we talk about Shakespeare, you and I obviously uh, relate uh, with Shakespeare on a, a very personal basis. But the first time you ever read a Shakespeare play, you're not sure what half yeah, the words yeah, are yeah. mean, right? So eventually it unlocks in your head if you keep at it, if you're interested enough, if uh, you have these experiences that teach you something. Shakespeare... When I've presented it to other people, when it is a film, when it is a dramatic production, when it's on stage or on screen, people get it. When it's just the text, it's very difficult. You've got to be an English major type person or you've got to be an actor or director working through the text to stage it. But when you're just reading it as a student, a normal person, you know, it's, it's 400 years out of date as far as the language goes. So it's, it's not going to work the same way. But once it's dr dramatized, once it's on screen, once you see the, the emotions, the expressions, the, it's the actor that makes it come alive. And then it becomes something. And even if you don't get the references, you know, like what the most staged Shakespeare play in the world ever is Richard III. And in Richard III, if you don't know anything about the War of the Roses, who are all these characters who have like three names each because they're called, you know, Clarence is just the Duke of Clarence, but his real name is George and blah, blah, blah. If you don't know any of that, the play doesn't really explain it per se. So reading it, it's just confusing. And even watching it, you don't know all of this stuff. Uh, it's like you got to have also your bachelor's degree in history just to understand the literature. I, I think it's interesting about the, the presentation aspect of Shakespeare, because it's like you say, you know, it's one thing to, you know, read a quote-unquote cold text i know th th this might be something to throw into my my shakespeare cred portion of the episode but i remember one of the things that sort of elated me and it's not entirely related to say star trek but it is related to shakespeare was 
on my YouTube page, I remember I had a teacher contact me and ask if they could, this was in the early ages of YouTube before people just, you know, posted links and shared them all over the place. So it was kind of quaint and cute. But this teacher asked me if she could have my permission to show her students a mashup video I made. This was in the early days, but when you basically you would do like a trailer mashup. So my trailer mashup was the Titus Andronicus trailer, the movie that Julie Taymor with Anthony Hopkins. Sure. And then and then I did a mashup because I was doing all these Transformers mashups with different trailers like Lord of the Rings and stuff like that. And so I took a a Japanese Transformer series called Master Force and I did a mashup with Titus Andronicus and she's like, "Oh, my students are going to love this. I want to present something to them so they'll be excited and passionate about what they're about to read." And I guess to me like that sort of elated me in the sense of I was like, "Yeah, th- yeah, show them that. If it if it makes them interested in it, if it if it turns on a light bulb or a switch like you're saying, like cuz I I understand what you're saying. There's lots of hurdles to get over if you're going to appreciate and enjoy Shakespeare. Like you're saying, there's there's the references, there's the dated references, there's, you know, kind of deciphering the language. It's still English, but to, to some people, that's a hurdle for them. You know, it's like it's like one of those things. They call it Old English uh, when, uh, well, no, Old English is like Beowulf and stuff. And then there was Middle English, which was Chaucer. Now this is Modern English, yet, you know, the the, the vocabulary and the... And then it's all going to be in poetry, and then it's gonna, all going to be about interior stuff, and it's all going to be, you know, Shakespeare is coining words along the way. You know what else I wanted to ask you as like a Star Trek fan? Like this was something that while I was reviewing it with the the Shakespeare lens, I I stopped and had a kind of huh moment where I was like, what's your thought about the character Flint from Requiem for Methuselah? Is he potentially like Shakespeare? You know what I mean? Like because they they never outright come and say it but it seems like in all these texts that i'm reading it's like they they go through and say oh flint's immortal he's been you know all these different historical figures and then then the, the inference right is oh these are original first folios captain you know and you're like so does that mean he wrote them and and if that's the case like how does that throw a new twist in the klingon hamlet and all this other stuff like i'm i'm just curious cuz to me that seems like something that that you know maybe memory alpha decided he was also shakespeare but i'm not 100% convinced but i'm also not 100% unconvinced either and so i'm curious what other you know in terms of the 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 nerdiness the dorkiness you know the 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 star trekness like like do you think he's shakespeare do you think he's not shakespeare like what what do you think about flint i i I don't first i'll complete my original thought which is just to say quickly that the same hurdles that we encounter well just jump 300 or 400 years they encounter it as well so not everyone would be necessarily up on their shakespeare in the same way you know so Kirk and Picard, yes, they, they tapped into it. They, they, they decided to make it part of their command style and their diplomatic style. Other characters, uh, whether they're, they're aliens maybe or not everyone, you know, I, you don't see you know, Chief O'Brien quoting Shakespeare <laughs> all over the place. But he did learn the cello and he did understand the importance of the arts, even though he was a technician. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so different people have different skill sets and different interests. And I think that's true in three, four hundred years, as it is today. And so I don't think that everyone is up on their Shakespeare in the same degree. Hey, hey, Lieutenant Lieutenant Paris is a, a movie serial expert. Right. So he, he totally for, forgoes Shakespeare altogether. He yeah. is into the old movie serials. He's so. into junk culture, yeah. But to answer your question, okay, Flint. Here's the thing with Flint. They don't say it outright. That's true. 
He has the folios, which only means that he was a contemporary of Shakespeare. It doesn't have to be that he is Shakespeare. Yeah, he could have he could have performed with Shakespeare. Maybe maybe he was he was on stage. Right? Yeah, he yeah. could be Marlowe. He could be so okay. But I know that's the inference. It also taps into my one of my pet peeves, and one of my pet peeves is the idea that Will Shakespeare did not write the plays or not all of the plays or not all of the sonnets, that there is a ghost writer, that there, there was a, a collective out there, you know, different people wrote the, the plays that are the masterworks. So you've got a real Will Shakespeare who acted on stage, who usually played old men or the ghost, and you know, the, the, the father of Hamlet. Uh, that's the real Will Shakespeare. Uh, he probably wrote the Henry VI trilogy, Titus Andronicus, some of the early plays. But the ones that, that show true genius, uh, that are considered the genius plays, no way. That that can't be a cobbler's son. It can't be this commoner. It's got to be an aristocrat. It's got to be someone with a who was not self-taught, who did not go to a little country school. People can't accept the genius coming out of somebody so low on the totem pole. I hate that theory. I hate it. When you look at those genius plays, they're all about drama. The world's a stage. They're about dramatizing ourselves. Hamlet is, you know, if Hamlet is the the masterwork then it's about a guy who's playing at madness, maybe. Uh, it's, it's about a guy who is so interested in drama that he talks about what drama should look like, what the theater should be like, and he, and he criticizes the bad theater uh, when he's talking to his friends. He sees uh, you know, he, the, 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 play, the players come in, he wants to hear a certain speech, he does the speech himself, uh, he writes a little play. That is the Will Shakespeare who, who works in the theater writing this. It can't be. It is not an aristocrat somewhere in an ivory tower uh, feeding these sheafs of paper, these folios to, you know, it's not a patron giving Will Shakespeare this stuff. I think Flint is sort of, you know, it pushes that same button for me because, oh, you know, we can't have a genius playwright in the uh, late 16th century who had that upbringing. Doesn't make sense. So it's got to be this immortal. It's got to be Vandal Savage, you know. No. <laughs> No, he doesn't need to. He's already a genius. He's already written the greatest literature of our time. And I don't care if there were additions, if over the years the, the play was, you know, rewritten and then somebody added little additions that today we understand to be Shakespeare, but that Will Shakespeare never really touched. It doesn't matter to me who the guy was. Shakespeare to me is the canon. And I'd rather think that it came from someone small in the scheme of things than it coming from someone who was important in, in terms of society at the time. I hate the idea that Flint would be the real Will Shakespeare. Well, he wouldn't have been the real Will Shakespeare because he was alive before then, right? His, his start is way earlier. Yeah. So this immortal, of course he's immortal, <laughs> so he's got these superpowers, and so he can write Shakespeare. You're like, a Highlander did not write Shakespeare. I'm glad, I'm glad you're, I'm glad I, I'm glad I touched a button and you're passionate about your, your feelings about the Flint thing, cause I, I don't know that I, I don't know that I, I felt one way or the other. It just sort of confused me to the point where I felt like something about this doesn't quite sit well with me but you've managed to articulate and and convince me that that your point of view is is completely valid and i was right to <laughs> to take pause you know like that 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 was that was a good instinct because i haven't seen that anonymous oh or whatever, right, that, right, it, right 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 uh, what is it yeah yeah, yeah i think it's anonymous yeah yeah anonymous uh i haven't seen it because um well because it's it's about that yes which yes <laughs> i hate um but derek jacoby is in that and he's in that because 
I love him as an actor, and I, I, you know, when he talks about Shakespeare and all that, I mean, he's he's one of the greats, and yet he believes this thing. He believes it. That's why he's in the film. You know, that that's that oh, that sticks in my craw. <laughs> uh, that's someone that I respect for his work on. He, you know, his Hamlet is he's not the only great Hamlet, but he's pretty definitive. The 1980 BBC version as one of the great Hamlet performances. Uh, it's so subtle. It's so mercurial. It's got so much going on under the skin. He's incredible. Whereas Patrick Stewart in that, I think, is a pretty boring Claudius. <laughs> Patrick Stewart as Claudius in the David Tennant version, I do recommend. He's amazing in that. It's like, you know, the difference a couple of decades make. Same character, same actor, but completely transformed uh, the performance itself. I, I love him in, in the Tennant version. But... The, the Jacoby version, uh, I, I, it's like, oh, man, you got Romana, you got Patrick, you know, you got Captain Picard, and uh, and all I want to look at is Derek Jacoby. So uh, it, it, it really frustrates me. It's all it's all relative. I mean, as long as it's not Michelle Pfeiffer in a Midsummer Night Stream, I think I think it's all up from there. So. <laughs> uh, is she really that bad as Titania? I'm going to say yes. Okay. No, th- that's a Kevin Klein um, <laughs> movie, first and foremost. I think, uh, you know, Kevin Klein is a great uh, you know, American Shakespearean actor. He's done yeah, some... Yeah. Yeah, that's a great work. So, and anyway, Midsummer Night's Dream is all about bottom. I'm, I'm sorry, everything else. And again, this is one of the, you know, the the tentpole plays in the canon. Arguably the greatest comedy, even though we may, may like others, it's arguably the greatest comedy that that Shakespeare's done. And there's this little love affair, fantasy, fairy stuff. But what you really watch it for is these idiots putting on a play. That's what's funny about it. And, uh, you know, people putting on a play. Again, this is like a playwright who works as, you know, the daily grind in a theater. That's what he puts on stage. So I don't believe it can be someone else from somewhere else, an aristocrat who just likes theater, uh, writing this stuff. It doesn't make sense to me. It's so gritty when it comes to the, the the process of writing and the process of putting on a play and the process of acting. It's so embedded in the drama that it's got to be somebody that lives it, you know, day to day. That's that's how it feels real to me. So anyway, Flint, that's the kind of concept that just pisses me off. And, you know, it's, it's like any passion. You got to have opinions. I think I'm more territorial about this than I am about anything in the Trek fandom itself. Mm. You, know, like, you know, people will say, oh, that's... That's not real Star Trek or, you know, that sort of stuff. Yes, and I, yes. I, I can't really get behind any kind of outrage when it comes to these, you know, Doctor Who's the same. It can get very nasty between Doctor Who fans. Star Trek to a lesser point, but I think a lot of people went, well, Discovery, that's not a real Star Trek! Mm. And uh, I just don't get outraged. It's just part of a larger canon. It's a different way to tell a story. It's a different tone. Some of it is good. Some of it is not so good. But I don't get angry over it. I don't think I have any outrage over the fictional canon of Star Trek, but I, I'm probably guilty of calling the Orville fake Star Trek, but but that's just me being flippant, I guess, you know, like... Yeah, uh, well, know. it isn't really Star Trek either, you know, it's just like a, a nice little tribute to Next Gen, I think, it's, it's how it feels to me, plus fart jokes, yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, but the, that Shakespeare thing where Shakespeare didn't write the play, that's way up there with... Uh, we didn't land on the moon. But those two things, I see spots. It's uh, <laughs> Those are my two uh, hot buttons. What can I say? <laughs> so any uh, last thoughts about uh, Shakespeare and uh, 
Star Trek and their connection? I, I guess I would just, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'd speak out to the uh, invisible audience. I mean, if, if this has interested you in anything, like there's, there's a lot of great films. There's, you know, or even just to sit down and read the text. There's, you know, well, luckily we're in a day and age where, you know, I mean, you know, Siskoid's mentioned some, some films and recordings of things and I've mentioned some things. Like there's a lot of cool stuff to check out. I mean, even if, even if it's as simple as your passion for, for Star Trek, like there's some cool videos of of a troop of actors who actually perform the Klingon Hamlet, and I thought that was the most you know interesting thing ever. You know, like just you know they had some clips of of their performances and then some behind the scenes backstage stuff where they discussed their their process and you know essentially how they pretty much just linguistically repeated it, you know, phonetically, and then learned the lines that way, because they don't, it's like they're actors, but yet they don't speak Klingon, so they would they would have someone from the Klingon Institute pronounce all the lines, and then they would, you know, phonetically memorize them and stuff, so like, all, all that kind of stuff, if there's any, if there's anything that you have any interest in, you know, if it's, if it's more on the Star Trek end, I hope this inspires you to look a little more at the Shakespearean end, if you're, if you're really into Shakespeare, and you're you're like, what's all this sci-fi, you know, uh, flim-flammery? Like, maybe maybe this would encourage you to check out, you know, some of the, the Star Trek stuff that, that Siskoid and I are equally passionate about. Because I don't know if Star Trek helped foster my interest in Shakespeare. I don't know. But when I watch Shakespeare performances... Sometimes I'll go, oh, that's a line from, uh, you know, <laughs> I won't be, it's not like I'm watching Star Trek and going, oh, that's a line from Julius Caesar. No, no, I'm watching Julius Caesar and going, oh, that's that line from Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just, it's priorities, right? The, the geek, the geek, the geek comes first sometimes, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's all inter, you know, interrelated for me. Uh, so yeah, check it out, people. If you want to leave comments, of course, on, um, fireandwaterpodcast.com or ask questions. I'm sure we can fill you in in the comment section as well. I've got a lot of favorite Shakespeare plays and um, I will usually know if there's a like a commonality like a Star Trek actor in there somewhere because uh, I kind of keep track of that stuff in my head. Uh, well, Derek, I, I get to stay for subspace transmissions. That's Star Trek news and, yes, the feedback on our previous episode. Uh, so I'll let you spore drive out of here. Uh, thanks again for spending this time with me. Where can people find you? Yeah, if people want to find me out there on the interwebs, I have a chronological coverage of uh, comic book properties on film and television. It's at hocof.blogspot.com and on YouTube. And then if you like listening to podcasts like this, I have my own uh, series of podcasts over on the Fanholes Podcast Network, and that's at fanholespodcast.blogspot.com. All right. Black Alert. Once upon a time, five friends who met on the Bot Talk Transformers forum set out to develop a podcast dedicated to their various interests. Transformers, science fiction, fantasy, and comic books. Part fanboys and part assholes, they came to be known as the Fanholes. Their unbridled enthusiasm for podcasting did not end there, and soon enough, their proper podcast spun off into the Fanholes network of podcasts. Besides our podcast proper, the Fanhole soon had a continuum of genre-specific, focused shows such as Mobile Suit Mondays, Transformers Tuesdays, Toku Thursdays, and Sentai Saturdays. New weekly content can be found on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and fanholespodcast.blogspot.com. Fanholes Podcast, the pop culture podcast, made for the fans 
by the fans. Incoming subspace transmissions. In Star Trek news, Star Trek Discovery Season 2 started since the last time we spoke, and I've loved what I've seen so far, especially Anson Mount as Captain Pike. He's awesome, as is the development they're giving to some of the support crew on the bridge and the general uptick uh, in levity and humor. Episode 4 comes out this coming Thursday. A week after we gave our fantasy pitches for Star Trek programming, CBS announced more, of course, including a kid-friendly animated series that, unlike Lower Decks, may not be on All Access to give it a greater audience. According to head honcho Alex Kurtzman, that second animated show would also have a very different visual style. CBS also announced there will be more short treks, the next two of which will be animated. When we last spoke, a Section 31 show starring Michelle Yeoh was rumored, but that was it. It's since been announced as Michelle Yeoh officially came on board. They're using the term Black Ops, indicating that the show will likely lean on espionage and action. The showrunners want to assure fans that the show will not abandon Star Trek optimism. More information has been revealed about the Picard show. It will take place in a universe changed by the destruction of Romulus, the event that kicked off the Kelvin Timeline movies, apparently 12 years after that event, or roughly 20 years after Star Trek Nemesis. The plan, as it stands, is for it to be very serialized. Patrick Stewart says it will play as a 10-hour movie, and it could run up to three years. While on TV, Star Trek seems to be thriving, the news is not so good for the movie screen. Star Trek IV, which uh, would have followed Star Trek Beyond, has reportedly been shelved. Looks like that may be it for the Kelvin timeline. However, Paramount is apparently still interested in the franchise. The Tarantino movie hasn't been similarly shelved. And if the re-merger with Viacom that's being negotiated happens all of Trek could once again fall under the same umbrella, and with J.J. Abrams' deal with Paramount ending in 2020, Alex Kurtzman could end up running a cinematic universe that includes both TV and movies. Now on to your comments for episode 29, in which David Jeffress and I talked about CBS's plans for Star Trek and pitched series of our own. We kind of dared you to do the same. Uh, let's start with Alan W. Wright. He says, if I would do the elevator pitch in Hollywood shorthand for the Picard series, it would be Star Trek meets the West Wing or Mr. Picard goes to Washington. Imagine an older, retired Picard getting into civilian politics, just as some famous soldiers have done. Eisenhower, McCain, and Tokarnak of Bandar 5. We've only seen glimpses of the civilian side of how the Federation works, like in the DS9 episodes. I'd like to think there's an, there are elections in the future. Imagine if a populist is perverting Federation values, but is really popular among a certain class. Picard runs for office and his opponents drag up every damning thing against him. Picard will need someone on his campaign who understands the press and writing. Jake Sisko, perhaps? Oh, and Picard's political opponent is such a plain and simple speaker. Quite astonishing that he'd be so skilled as his campaign advisor is a mere tailor. David S. Gutierrez says, I'd love to see what's up with the DS9 crew 20 years on as well. My pitch would be similar to Siskoid's. Send a Federation envoy to a deep part of space on Generation ships, years from Starfleet support. Let the drama play out that way instead of wagon train to the stars and Oregon trail in space. Then we have Rob Kelly. He says, I still have not yet sampled Discovery, but I'm very excited over the new Picard show. When that finally launches, that will be appointment television for me. Though I guess that would mean we'll never see Picard interact with the Kelvin timeline, Trek movies, something I sort of hoped we would get. 
Abulam Vada says, uh, What completely surprised me was that no one proposed an animated Captain Sulu show. Can you imagine how terrific it would be to tune in each week and hear George Takei yelling, Fly her apart then! It could be... No, would be the greatest Star Trek series ever made. Oh my. There's an animated show coming. It's all ages. Uh, it could uh, very well star uh, George Takei. Maybe he should uh, give them a call. Kevin Lauderdale says, I wrote a Star Trek Warehouse 13 story for the Star Trek anthology Constellations. I still think it's available on Amazon. My story is Devices and Desires and takes place at a facility I called The Yard, where all that alien tech is studied. This counts as an official pitch, Kevin. Uh, maybe uh, you should give CBS a call. Brian Linton says, I think CBS needs a Star Trek series aimed at younger viewers. So my pitch would be for an animated series featuring a multi-species group of spunky young kids who all live on a large Tribble ranch. The recurring antagonists would be an inept band of Klingons seeking to eradicate Tribbles from the galaxy, starting with our young hero's ranch. I can already see the new line of Tribble plush toys. Uh, Brian later added that this was just a joke, but it's kind of close to my Trek Pets idea that I had a couple days after recording, because isn't that always the way? Uh, sort of Pet Avengers set up with Porthos, Spot, Worf's Pet Targ, uh, Spock's Salat, and a very hungry Tribble. Also, uh, you just heard in Star Trek News, they are doing something pitched at kids. It is animated. Your idea is as good as any. Chris Franklin says, I want a series of Shatner as Kirk in the Ribbon Nexus chopping wood all day, every day, except when he's riding horses or doing other manly stuff. Making toast, going upstairs to that woman, Antonia, we never knew and we never see. Or we see that one day it's Antonia, the next day it's Ruth, Miramani, or Carol Marcus, and then we finally end the series and he got it right and it's Edith Keeler, played by Joan Collins, of course. And we end with Tim Price. He says, I didn't have a pitch. Really, I didn't. But it came to me just now as a limited run, not an ongoing, a parody talk show hosted by Q. Characters from any era can appear because Q brings them. But also, we can have interviews with the series actors. Very Space Ghost, Coast to Coast, and Breaking the Fourth Wall, because why not? He's Q. Thanks for that one, Tim. Thanks, everyone, for your pitches. And as usual, let me remind you that you can leave comments as well at fireandwaterpodcast.com, on the Fire and Water Facebook page, or on Twitter, we're FW Podcasts. Until the next episode, this is Siskoid reminding you to go boldly. Tach, pa, tach, be. <laughs>